point A. The day shrugs off the blanket of night smoke and the sun is riotous and pure. Taunting and polishing the top of ridges, whose rugged stances are daunting across what is lost and what's given here at point A. Still bristling in stillness, setting this kindling in my chest. This beauty is the blistering kind, less faint and more fire-like red here at point A. The horizon holds ash between us, carries the wind like a threat and the dirt like a curse. To reach it, I will have to scrape myself across this brittle and riddled earth here at point A. To ignite the miles on the traverse to point B, I'll fold my fight into this fire. And I swear I won't leave. Musician, spoken word poet, filmmaker, and short track world champion Christopher Blevins has a new film coming out, The Long Traverse, on November 26th. What you just heard was his introduction to this film, which uh, takes us on a visual auditory ride through California. We're speaking with Christopher later on in the show, but right now we are checking in with Jim Cotton in England. How are you, Jim? What's going on today? Hey, Ben. Yeah, I'm good. Uh, not much is going on over here. I'm currently nursing a little bit of illness. So uh, I've been uh, sat on the sofa uh, with my feet up for most of the day, which is quite a sad state of affairs. Otherwise, it's good. Well, I'm sorry to hear that and Godspeed in your recovery. You just did a fun piece on five key moments from the 2020 road season. It's often fun at the end of the season to look back and see what the biggest moments were and we'll probably be doing more of that uh, as we get into December. But I thought this was a a great jump off point. So since the road season is over, let's let's look back at what the what the key points were and why and what they mean going forward. So we've got Jim Cotton's not the top five, but five key moments, and hoping you can walk us through those. Let's start with with number one crashes at the Tour de France. There's always crashes at the Tour. What was what was different about this year, Jim? The first week of the Tour de France is always pure kind of crash fest and carnage, but this year just took it to another level. So on the very first stage, there was the uh, the infamous collision with the, the spectator holding a, a sign sort of saying hello to her grandma and grand, grandmother and grandfather and uh, wiped out about uh, 50 riders. And then in the week that followed it was kind of a case of all the GC contenders uh, getting picked off one by one. So Primoz Roglic crashed and abandoned not long after. Geraint Thomas crashed and completely just lost his like form. And Jack Hay crashed. And it was basically left to Tade Pogacar as the last man standing. And it just totally shaped the race. And uh, it put Pogacar in the perfect position to take his second yellow jersey and really rise to the top of Grand Tour racing. Not like that man needed any more assistance in dominating the tour, but uh, got got a little got a little help in some ways from from these crashes and and, and thus the uh, Opie Omi sign became a cycling meme scattered around the world. Grandpa, grandma, cardboard sign. Yeah. The poor the poor woman was well, she was prosecuted and she talked about all sorts of um The woman who holded the sign. Yeah, and well, you know, she shouldn't have been holding it, but it seems like she was. Uh, she got the real brunt of her of, of, her, of the actions as well. Yeah, something that one you know, the a crash could certainly have happened like that pre social media, but in the age of social media, the repercussions uh, 
were intense for sure. In addition to the fun memes, yeah, stress was certainly brought down on her and arguably because of the, the old school media of the video camera, right? Like that, that's what she was doing was, you know, trying to say hi to grandpa and grandma on the television and looking at the TV camera instead of the bike racers. Yeah. It's like a collision of old and new and uh, yeah, it just didn't, didn't work out, but unfortunately a lot of riders, uh, you know, saw the end of their race as well in a race as big as the tour de France, which is what, what a rider works towards all year and what can, you know, make their career. Uh, uh, some of them didn't get to complete it because of, uh, something that was fairly mindless, really. Perube Femmes, big story number two, and Tour de France Femmes. We're seeing some some progress, not to, up to full equity, but things headed in the right direction with women's racing. Yeah, so this was the second one on my list, and um, it was just about how big a how big a, a step the Paris Roubaix fan was, which um, obviously made its debut this year after it was pushed back a number of times, and. Obviously, it was it was huge in itself in that Paris Roubaix for men has been around for over a hundred years, and it's one of the most famous races in the sport. But the, there was never a women's version, and with the women's version arriving finally, that was huge in itself. But it's it's like the first step in a wave of progress for the women's sport. So next year, there's the the women's Tour de France, which is organised by the same people as Paris Roubaix fam, uh, which is the ASO who organized the men's tour de France. And there's a lot of big, big kind of names from the men's world tour getting involved in the women's world tour. So EF education who are behind the American, the American pink team, uh, <laughs> they're, they're kind of partnering up with Tipco Silicon Valley, uh, bank, the, which is an American continental team next year to sort of take that, much bigger and similar situation for other teams and the next season we'll see a load more a load more top races for the women as well so it's like that Paris Roubaix fam was just the kind of the opening of the door for a lot more things to come or Linda Jackson along the stalwart behind team Tipico has been building steadily for years and it's great to see her take her squad to the next level so excited to see that next year Another thing everybody loves in sport in general is a comeback story, and we had a few of those in 2021. Yeah, everyone everyone loves a comeback, and when it's Mark Cavendish, it sort of adds a little a little fizz to the uh, to the story as well. I think so. Mark Cavendish was sort of the the sensation of the of the season, really. So you know, people thought he was old and wrote him off, and that he was slow, and Almost out of nowhere, he started winning this year the Tour of Turkey, which is you know Tour of Turkey. No, no disrespect, but it's it's no Tour de France. But then he but then he followed it up and actually won at the Tour de France as well. And uh, multiple times, yeah, uh, four four stage wins at the Tour de France, which gave him enough victories to level up with Eddie Merckx, uh, like historic hall, like record hall. So there was there was the double story really in that Cavendish was back and he was you know level with Merckx, uh and he's hopefully got another year to go one better than Eddie Merckx and take like this all time record for tour stage wins. Really, really now though, do you, do you do you see Cavendish coming back to the Tour de France next year? Uh, 
Be honest, Jim. Be honest. I don't know. This dovetails with my next point, actually. <laughs> I don't. I. I really don't know. The the thing is, is that uh, Quick Step have got so many good sprinters, and they've probably got a better one who also made a comeback last year, which this year, which was Fabio Jakobsen, who's about twelve years younger, and is 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 faster probably, and it's got a lot more long, a lot longer to go. So. I don't think Cavendish is a shoe in for the tour next year. He's not even completed his contract with Decoyne Quick Step yet, so he might not even have a team. And Jakobsen's comeback story was was a bit grimmer in that, as you say, he's a talented young rider who had a horrific crash tour of Poland. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So um, in 2020, he uh, was was part of a huge pileup in a crash on yeah on the very first stage of the race and um, sort of bounced into the barriers and cartwheeled about 10 times and had to have huge reconstruction on his face and it took him months to get back into the saddle but almost as soon as he started racing and kind of refound his confidence to compete in these you know kind of 100 kilometer an hour sprints or whatever they are he started winning like huge races again and before his crash he was one of the fastest in the bunch and he proved that you know he's his confidence hasn't taken a hit and he's still just as good as he was. And he'll be around for another five, 10 years and he could keep winning for that long if he if he uh, does things right. That's great to see. The, the crash is always a big story in bike racing and the cash is also a big story in bike racing. Talk to us about UAE team Emirates and uh, what's been going on leading into next year. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of pro cycling is getting wealthier year on year and teams like UAE Team Emirates, which is obviously sort of state backed, are really pumping the money in big time. So obviously they they've already got Tade Pogachar, who, as we mentioned earlier, is probably the, the best Grand Tour rider of the of the generation, although his countryman Primoz Roglic may may argue otherwise. But um yeah, so they've they've got him and they extended his contract through to 2027, which is by far, well, is the longest contract in the World Tour at the moment and it's just completely unprecedented. And that was rumoured to cost, you know, multi, multi-million dollars, like probably, I think it's around 30 or $40 million. And then not long after that, the team started buying in all this extra talent and all these big names like Joao Almeida, Portuguese rider, who's another top like young talent. They signed him through 2026 and got a load more like really big names alongside that. And it's, it, it makes for a, a real shift in the dynamic in the peloton next year, I think, because at the moment, you know, if you say super team, you think of Ineos Grenadiers or Jumbo Visma, but now UAE Emirates is, is there, is well up there, like with them in terms of spending power, like roster strength and, um, yeah, just pure cash resource. And I think it will completely change how racing, how Grand Tour racing at least goes on uh, next year. Because before Pogachar was, he sort of just rode his luck, rode off the back of Ineos Grenadiers and sort of pounced and won that way. But next year he'll be able to bully bully people like in the way that team sky did back in the um 
back in the middle of last decade. So it's an interesting development as to whether what it will mean for those of us on the couch and the spectacle is another matter perhaps, but let's see next year. Do you think we will ever see a load balancing uh, type structure for pro cycling the way some other sports do, like where they're put in in terms of like a salary cap or, or, or just a way to help hedge that money doesn't define all things in, in terms of competition. Like, you know, we've seen in, in cycling, there's been a cap put on the tech, you know, a, the, with a bicycle minimum weight. And, you know, once upon a time, the idea was, you know, if money could buy the lightest, fastest equipment, we want to put a limit on that. So you don't have to be on the richest team to, to, to be on level playing ground in terms of equipment. Uh, but now, as in many sports, it's, you know, that's the humans themselves that are the, the key factors. And, and now money is talking and, and they with the, the biggest bank account uh, may not win, but they're certainly in the best position to win. Is there any talk of, of being able to level the playing field in, in some fashion there? Yeah, the, there's, there's long been rumors or, well, kind of a push for, say, salary caps or some some sort of system like an, an NFL draft or something where where riders are allocated to teams in a fairer way. But the the, the, pro- the inherent problem really is the, the way the sport is structured in that it comes through sponsors and, you know, sponsors pay big cash to get their name on a jersey and they want that rewarded. So they're, you know, the the big businesses are willing to put in the money and they want that to trickle through to the results that they see. So imposing a salary cap will, I I guess, will theoretically limit the amount of money that sponsors are willing to put into the sport. And then that could see the sport sort of um, stagnate a little bit or fail to push further forward. But I mean, personally, I think salary cap some sort of way to rebalance the peloton a little bit would be a good thing to see more open racing. One thing that changed racing, I don't know if it balanced racing, but a very interesting story of 2021 was the absence of race radios and the repercussions thereof at the Olympics this year. And the, the fifth story on your list is, is what happened with Annemiek van Vluten, you know, arguably the dominant force in the road race thought she won the road race but what happened jim yeah the olympic women's olympic road race was uh, i was a race that i don't think anyone will ever forget and it's just it's a story that will go down in the books for a long time i think so as as you said ben anime ben bluton crossed the line second and thought she'd won but it turns out that anna kiesenhofer who was more or less unknown rider was still up still up the road after being in the break for about five hours or something. She was the last breakaway rider. And because um, unlike in a uh, trade team, like pro racing, the competition at the Olympics and the worlds is without race radios. And there was this huge confusion over where riders were on the road. And, and this all conquering Dutch team was, you know, Mariana Voss and Anna van der Breggen and things. They, they, they thought they'd got the race sort of sewn up and sent Annemiek van Vluten off on the attack in the last kilometre or so, thinking she'd won. But it, it turns out 
somebody else already had. And uh, it just kind of goes to show that even in a world where the sport is getting more and more high tech and, you know, you can measure all sorts of data and riders getting more sophisticated with their training and things that sometimes in the mayhem of a race, things go wrong and even the strongest teams can kind of come unstuck. But for, for Van Vluten, it, it was terrible because, yeah, she crossed the line, thought she'd won, but she does have the resilience to bounce back and she won the time trial uh, later in the week and won a ton more races after that as well. So it was it was kind of a, a bittersweet story all around. Oh, sure, but definitely a memorable moment in a memorable year of road racing. Thanks for, for com- sure. Thanks for compiling that, Jim. That was good stuff. And while road racing is over, we are in the thick of cyclocross racing uh, with the World Cup season. You know, the three first races started in the United States. Now we're back to the heartland racing in Europe. This weekend coming up uh, is Coxida, the famous Sandy course. Now, Jim, you're you're scheduled to be there, and we uh, hope you are able to bounce back in your recovery so you're able to, to be there and cover that. What are you expecting from this weekend's racing, Jim? Coxida... For, for those that don't know, is like the the boss of cyclocross courses. It's basically set on the beach on a load of sand dunes, and it's it's just absolutely like no other race. So at the minute, the men's field is still without Matthew Van Der Poel, Wout Van Aert, and Tom Pidcock, who are still sort of recovering from the road season. And it, it looks like Pidcock and Van Der Poel are both definitely going back to the States to race the world championships, but um, Van Aert isn't sure. But at the moment, those three are missing. So it's, it's all these kind of Belgian and Dutch, like kind of hardcore dudes just knocking lumps out of each other. So that, that'll be fun. And the women's racing, um, it's all about Lucinda Brand, who's the world champion at the moment. But but for, for me, the thing I'm most excited about Coxider for is Belgian... When Belgians go to cyclocross, they go they go proper. It's it's about <laughs> it's <laughs> it's about beers, chips, having a party, and probably getting really cold and getting really wet. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's all about the atmosphere and the vibes. And last year, all the races were behind closed doors, so you know without fans because of all the COVID restrictions. And it's it's all back open again. And all the European racing this year has has seen you know, five, six, seven thousand fans lining these courses. So it'll be, it'll be quite a, uh, quite a show. So it's going to be a party, you say? Uh, hopefully. Yeah. 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 So we saw, you know, some uh, COVID cases in Belgium are rising as there are elsewhere in the world. And we saw with the, uh, the six days of Ghent, the track festival, that is also quite a party. Uh, some restrictions put in place there, such as no beer in the infield, which we saw our, our friend Gregor Brown saying, what? No beer at a 60. That's like saying there's not going to be a track in the track race. How is that even possible? But at least with Coxside World Cup, it is outside. So, you know, fingers crossed that uh, that will be a safe environment for, for all involved there. Yeah, for sure. Very much looking forward to the racing and uh, best of luck to you in healing up so you can get there and enjoy the reporting and the partying, Jim Cotton. Thank you, Ben. Christopher Blevins has been racing bikes since he was five years old. Getting his start on BMX, he won eight national championships in that discipline before he was 16. At age 12, he started racing road and mountain bikes and winning national titles in those disciplines too. 
In the past couple years, during all the racing and training in the run-up to the Tokyo Olympics, Blevins earned his degree from California Polytechnic State Institute in San Luis Obispo, California. And this year, in addition to going to the Olympics, Blevins took home gold, silver, and bronze medals from the Mountain Bike World Championships in the short track, the team relay, and the e-bike race, respectively. We are happy to welcome him now to the Velo News Podcast. Christopher Blevins, welcome to the Velo News Podcast. Good to see you, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Ben. Yeah, good to be here. It has been quite the year for you. You've, you've had remarkable year after remarkable year, but even in the, the calibration for Christopher Blevins, this has been uh, one, one for the books. You know, the current world champion in the first ever short track mountain bike race. And uh, not only did you get a gold medal at Worlds, you got a silver and a bronze rounded out. You were at the Tokyo Olympics. You were racing on the road. You were racing cyclocross. Uh, you've found time to make movies. You're doing FKTs. Uh, it's it's uh, pretty overwhelming just looking at what you've been up to. So uh, there's a lot of things I want to get into in this podcast to ask you about. And one of them is just like how you balance all these things. But let's, let's if, you, if we could, start off with the uh, the World Championships. And I always find it interesting to hear like what the plan was going into a race versus what, you know, how it plays out. And sometimes like, yeah, that's exactly how I planned it. But I'd like to hear your, your take on the short track, what, what the plan was going in and how that played out. You know, you had a front row start. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like you know, it was a pretty wide starting area, but funnels down almost cyclocross island into pretty narrow track. Mm-hmm. And you were, you know, sitting fourth or fifth wheel for, for most of the race. So what was, what was the plan going in? You know, it was really more intuitive than like a written out plan, um, for short tracks with them being only 20 minutes, like something's going to happen that you didn't expect. Um, and you always have to be ready for that. So it's more of like a, like a style of how I wanted to approach the race that I kind of lead with. Um, and typically in short tracks, it's like, wait, 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 stay in position. And then like all in, um, for one attack or one sprint. Yeah. I mean, you know, starting on the front row, this is the first short track of the season. I was on the front row, which had a huge, you know, part in, in, in winning the race. And then I knew I, I wanted to bank on my sprint or like my last lap attack. And the only way to get to that place is to just follow wheels and conserve energy and like read the race as it comes, like see who's fast, where people are attacking and absorb all that, but don't think about it. Right. Like you got to just follow your race instincts. And I think, well, I know that this was, this was the best race I've probably ever done that in, in trusting my race instincts. And it obviously, it paid off in that way. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like, you know, the, there would be some attacks where you don't have too much time to see if somebody else will close down. So like, it, it seems like it's instinctual of, you know, hoping someone will close it, but if they don't, you're, you know, full out sprinting to get back up onto the wheel, but not uh, exploding yourself. Was, yeah, I was, yeah, no, it's, it's such a, it's such a balance. Like you never want to be the one out in the wind, but there was one moment where Andre sink, um, the Czech yes. guy who's, who's always goes long and like, you know, his, his approach is always to just put the hammer down and, <laughs> and try to ride people off his wheel. Um, and he got off with Avancini and I had to close that if I wanted to fight for anything over better than a bronze medal. So that was like, you know, a split second decision to bridge that gap. And if I would have waited at all, I think it would have been, the end of my race. Yeah. The move could have stuck. Yeah. 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 Sure. But at the same time, yeah, you, you spend too many matches closing it down. Someone else could counter off of that and then, then you're done. So 
Like that's yeah. from a, a spectator standpoint, that's what makes it so exciting. It's, it's always just right, yeah. right on yeah. the edge. And it's such a short format. There's not time to recover and oh, I'll just wait another 10, 15 minutes and see how this plays out. Like it's all very much real time, exactly. very intense racing. And yeah, you took, took the lead coming into that last corner, opened up a sprint and had, had time to celebrate though. Yeah. <laughs> well, well done. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Now let's jump from that to the Olympics and, and talk about the, I mean, what, what are your thoughts as a racer on the starting grid? Because as you say, like that plays a huge, it's not everything, but it's, it's clearly an advantage to be at the front versus being at the back, uh, especially on, on narrower tracks where it funnels down more quickly. I mean, is there, a, if you were to create a race, how many people would be in it? Yeah. Um, the eight wide start grid is good. Um, it just depends on how long the wide you know, starting loop, um, goes for it. Right. So at the Olympics, it funneled into a, a, a split single track, like within 30 seconds. And then everybody was off their bike running, which like you start this Olympic mountain bike race and for everybody to be running like a minute in, um, that course was amazing. It was like, it was one of the best courses I've ever ridden, but I think we could have used a better start loop. Um, but it's also like, you gotta be ready for that. And, um, the start loop is always going to be hectic. Like no matter if you're starting first or you're obviously starting last, it's like crazy hectic. Um, and the way I approach those XCs is just like get through start loop and half of a first lap. And then like really have a moment where it's just, and you check in with your body, how you feel and like what your pacing strategy is. But yeah, the start loop is like, you know, the last 5k of a, of a criterion or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so vital. You're know, talking about checking in with yourself partway through, I'd like to hear you, you know, talk about what your, what some of your routines are as far as preparing before a race. You know, I know you will, you know, spend some time meditating, getting your, getting your head focused for racing. And, and is, is there, how similar is that to what your headspace is during a race? Or is that two totally separate things? I realize that's a very long open-ended question, but maybe we could just like start with the, the first part of like what, what your, you know, morning of the Olympics what your prep was to get your legs ready and to get your head ready. Well, yeah, just to answer your, you know, are they two separate things? The answer is no. Like it, it's one, it's one thing. It's not, you know, your mindset in a race and how you're kind of finding stillness in the middle of this crazy, you know, <laughs> Olympic course, like that is mindfulness in the same way, you know, finding that on a, on a cushion or sitting on a couch is, and that's really like, you know, that's easier said than, than practice, but um, that's why meditation, you know, and, um, and having like that time in, in silence before the race is so important for me. It's cause like you, you practice that, then you can find that still point in the middle of, you know, this dynamic movement. And that, that is flow, you know, that's like what we're, what we're searching for as athletes and what we all tap into at times. So, um, you know, the morning of the Olympics, I, I do my same kind of pre-race meditation that I have with, with, with a teacher. And then, um, build up kind of the same warm up routine, eat my pancakes three hours out, listen to like my nineties rap and, nice. <laughs> and get into it. But like, it's not just getting your head, you know, kind of like locked in. So you're not thinking about anything else. It's like also getting your energy ready, you know, um, and not, you know, calories you're eating through pancakes. Although, like I said, I do that <laughs> anyways, but, but like, you know, that subtle energy that is really how, how you win. Um, and, and channeling that and, and finding that in the middle of kind of right after that start loop, when you have to know, like, can I go with this move or can I wait, or should I wait and be ready for the last lap? Mm -hmm. Um, 
that's really something, you know, personally, I just find that mindfulness and, and coming back to that every day and throughout the race and the points, you know, your hands on the handlebars, everything like that, feeling that rather than thinking about it is what will inform how you race. Now you mentioned working with a teacher on your mindfulness practice. Does that teacher have any uh, interest in your cycling career uh, and knows, knows who you are as an athlete or, or is the practice yeah. apply universally, you know, regardless to whether you're racing the Olympics or you're just you know, trying to stay calm, standing in line at the DMV or waiting for tacos or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Yes. And yes. Again, you know, same, <laughs> same thing. You know, like my teacher is like a cyclist and, um, under, was a, was a former, you know, D three, um, college player in basketball. So understand kind of the, the pure athletic kind of performance sense of it. Um, which is, I think, starting to become more valued in the sport world. Your mindset and, and how you approach it, whether you're Michael Jordan, you know, learning from the Zen master, Phil Jackson, um, <laughs> or, or you're a cyclist. Like, it's all finding that flow. And yeah, I mean, it's an athletic flow is way different than sitting in the line of the DMV and, and not stressing out, right? But it is the same core kind of tenets that you have to check in with and it's the best approach to getting yourself, you know, locked in for race day. And what did you start working on this practice? Because you've been racing bikes since you were five years old and, you know, someone from the outside could say, well, yeah, it's easy for this guy to find his flow. Like that's what he's been doing. Like he was obviously born to do this and has been, you know, both the, the nature, the nature and the nurture is all aligned. But you know, what, what point did you start this, this practice and, and was it like a refinement of what you were already doing or was it just a, a big pivot in, in how you prepared for competition? Yeah. Um, it's a refinement for sure. I mean, <laughs> yes. And yes, again, maybe. That's <laughs> if you keep asking, saying yes, I'm going to ask if I can borrow $10,000 from you here. Yeah. <laughs> you like red or blue. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, at, at a, at a large level, it's like shifting to a process orientation and you know, everybody throws that out there all the time. Um, it's process, not results, but it really is. And it's like every ride, you know, we all know this as cyclists. Like the reason we ride a lot of us is, is because it's a flow, you know, <laughs> it's a flow state of sorts. Yes. And, you know, so I didn't, yeah, I didn't, um, I didn't think that I was necessarily practic practicing mindfulness as a cyclist until quite recently. And then I was like, Oh yeah, you know, I guess I have like when I'm just on one going down that single track, like, you know, something else is happening. I'm not making decisions, you know, I'm just riding. So in that way, yes, it's a refinement of looking a little more closely at what happens when, when you let your head get out of the way and you just ride, you know? And yeah, sometimes that can be just shredding single track. Sometimes it can be, you know, trying to win a world championships, but I think, you know, it's available to all of us as cyclists and, and, you know, a lot of us probably get antsy when we sit down and we're not pedaling, like, <laughs> um, and we're just sitting and we're not looking at our phones, but I think that's important. Um, but at the same time, the on the bike stuff is really an opportunity to, to be mindful. And is there something that you do when you find yourself out of the flow in a, in a race or even just on a ride to, to, to recenter you? So you mentioned, you know, just pay attention to holding the bars and breathing is, do you have any, any mantras or is there any tips you have? Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, guess yeah. is what I'm absolutely. fishing for here. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, mantras are important, right? I mean, uh, when I, I just, you know, core to my like, 
upbringing in Durango Devo is NFTF, which is never forget the feeling. Mm. And, you know, I mean, you forget the feeling when you start thinking like, oh man, I just, I just screwed up that, that Rudy section back there. Like that's when you need to come back and yeah. Like what is naturally present, like what's happening and just drop into that. And it's not, you, you don't hit that one time and then you're done. Right. It's like you continuously come back to it. And yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like it's just simply riding your bike and letting that be <laughs> that letting that be who you are at that moment. Um, yeah, I think like come back to the points of contact, you know, I really, I really work with my breath during a world cup a lot. Like there's sections when I'm pre-riding where I'm like, okay, this is where I'm going to take a big exhale mm-hmm. and then get back into it. And honestly, like, I think I'm just realizing sort of after this season, how important that was to my success this year. Never forget the feeling. Yeah, like Never forget the feeling, yeah. Uh, another, <laughs> another type of flow that you enjoy being in and excel at is, uh, you know, the spoken word, whether that's in you know, recording a rap album or, or in poetry. Like, you know, our listeners heard at the top of this program, uh, some of your, your work at the introduction to a, a new video that's coming out later this month, The Long Traverse. So I'd be curious to hear about how you got into poetry both as a art form for yourself and then in teaching others you know i don't know if you're still doing this but at least at one point there yeah. in san luis obispo you were working with um folks at, uh, juvenile Hall on 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 poetry and spoken word poetry so yeah. what was the genesis there it was it was high school uh freshman year poetry class and <laughs> you know like a lot of like kids i was i was writing raps or what i thought were raps um in like eighth grade and freshman year um and it was always it was always more more lyrical and poetry based than 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 musical, you know. Um, and sometimes you take the beat away completely, and it's just spoken word or poetry. And then, yeah, stuck with me throughout high school. I made an album of sorts my freshman year of college, which was sort of a rite of passage for me. Um, it's called Mile Markers, and it was like, yeah, I mean, the mile marker was mile marker eighteen, graduating high school, stepping into adulthood, and like I was able to process that and like orient myself in this new world as a, you know, through, through poetry and music. And honestly, that's, that's one of the accomplishments I'm proudest of is, <laughs> is, is making that, that album. Um, it's up there with a world championships. And then, um, I took a couple of poetry classes in college, uh, pure poetry and started to understand a bit more about, you know, sonic texture and form and all of that stuff. Um, and then, I'm a, I studied sociology in college along with business and, um, had a, a group of people come into a class one day and, and talk about restorative partners, which is this organization that volunteers, um, at the, at the local juvenile hall. And I went in and did creative writing with the kids, but mostly we just played cards and they, uh-huh. they taught me how to, yeah, card games that, um, then, then, then they kicked my ass in every day. <laughs> um, but like I'd bring in a scrapbook and we'd, write out or we'd kind of do blackout poetry or erasure. So you, you black out the words you don't want to use and then keep the ones you do and you make a poem out of an existing page. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was able to kind of spin in the poetry and some reflection, but it was really just like a cool experience for me to, to meet those kids, see their backgrounds, which were so fundamentally different than mine, you know? and just so much more disadvantaged than mine. And it taught me a lot, like as a student and as a human. Mm-hmm. And now you're doing some work 
or more work, I should say, in uh, another medium, which is video, where you can get, get to combine the, the sonic textures and the, the wordplay with, yeah. with some visuals and getting out there and riding the bikes also. So like all the, all the things are coming together. Yeah. So tell us if you can a bit about the, the long traverse. You know, I got to watch this ahead of time and uh, was impressed by, you know, I've seen a lot of these videos at this point. And often it's like, here's a elite level rider riding in a beautiful place, which is sweet to watch. It's great eye candy. But what struck me about this was how it connected a real sense of place uh, yeah. for it seemingly, you know, you personally, but then just as the viewer, I came away learning things <laughs> about uh, the area and reconstructing after fire and such. So I'm curious what, what the drivers were there, how much of this was, was your idea in a personal project versus, you know, sometimes writers are just pitched on things like, Hey, we're doing this and you're the guy show up at this time go. Yeah. So yeah. How, how did this, how did this come about? And, uh, what were some of the, the, the takeaways for you? Yeah. So long traverse it's, it's the first project, um, from still spoke, which is my you know, creative platform. I'm starting with a group of my best friends and like, <laughs> it's a dream. I mean, it's something we talked about for a long time and, we had all the creative freedom in the world to, to tell our story and for myself personally to learn throughout that process. Like I did, I went in with it with like, man, this route, this, um, this ride that goes from the Koyama Valley in central California up and over the Sierra Madre route and Sierra Madre mountains in the Los Padres, um, and ends near Santa Barbara. It's 80 miles. It's 11,000 feet of climbing. And it is like truly iconic. It's amazing. And I went into this project with that as kind of the centerpiece, like how can I, you know, do one of these FKT things out here and, and yes, like learn about this place throughout the process. But then I, you know, now that the project is more or less finished, I've zoomed out in such an extreme way where, you know, we've had conversations about through the film, um, the, the monoculture of, you know, carrot farming in the Koyama Valley and, you know, how the, the, the region is critically overdrafted in, in water. It's one of the, you know, handful of hundreds of ha handful of critically overdrafted water basins in California out of the 500 or so. Mm -hmm. um, and those things matter, right. And like, they matter way more than an FKT, um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, but like being able to, to tell a, a bike's lands, a landscape story through the bike is really, you know, where I can come into this from. And I think that this route in particular traces so much history, both, um, you know, socially and culturally, and then as well as like, um, environmentally with like the wildfires and extractive industries in that area. And the bike is really a good teacher and kind of pointing you towards these larger issues. Um, you know, that, that, um, we really need to, you know, as an industry, as, as cyclists, like we have a lot to gain and reclaim from stepping into that conversation. You know, it's not like extra work that we have to do. Um, it will make us appreciate the places we ride more and, and see how beautiful it is that we get to ride a six mile single track that, you know, has been reclaimed from forest fires, um, in years past, like it gives more meaning to what we do. And, and I'm realizing like, yeah, that's, man, we all, why wouldn't we do that? <laughs> sure. And, and listeners should know, like in addition to introducing us to the, the history and the culture and the agriculture and the, you know, geography, you also are getting your hands dirty, doing some trail work and 
building parts of these trails that yes. you're going out and, and ripping later. And that also, I'm sure would give you an appreciation for it when it's not, you just show up and like, Oh, this is perfect and lovely. Like you're out there with a, the, with a the shovel and getting after it. I've got a technical question for you, sir. That if it was my understanding that, that most, if not all of this is not accessible by a vehicle. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So the filming, when it's showing you flying along, is that a buddy on an e-bike precariously perched or, or how is this, how was this executed? So I wish I took videos, um, <laughs> v- and, videos of making videos of the videos being made. So yeah, can, exactly. Yes. Um, but I was, you know, trying to set a fastest time or establish a fastest time on this route. So I was in time trial mode. Um, although I know it can go faster, so someone <laughs> will be, <here. laughs> um, but this video, it was filmed all in one run from Keenan displays, um, one of my best friends and an absolute powerhouse athlete and creative. And he had three e-bike batteries on a Levo, um, like not just the extenders, but like full on batteries. Right. In his each, pack. each of which weigh like 10 or yeah. 15 yeah. pounds or something. Yes. And then, you know, a red camera, which is, which is not easy to swing around and he's getting this amazing content and he's like, just up and back and up and back. And we were prepared. Like we had a spot device, you know, we had water, we had a filter so that we could fill water up in the cow trough, which is the only place to get water. (laughs) Um, but at the same time, like there's nobody out there, it's totally rugged. And I mean, anyone listening to this, like, if you want to check out the route, you know, go to stillspoke.com and like, and check it out, but, but definitely be prepared because it's not something to mess around with. But Keenan is just amazing. Like (laughs) it's one of those things you watch, you, you watch like free solo. Yes. And you wonder how Jimmy Chin is getting those shots up on the wall. Yes. Yeah. I think Keenan has a similar, just like absolute go get it mentality to him. (laughs) Yeah. And it, it, the end result, obviously I couldn't see what you were seeing, but the end result, what the viewer sees is some pretty sweet footage on, on, uh, what appears to be like virgin forests and tight tracks and you're getting something as if someone was filming you from a car on a smooth highway. So well done, Keenan. Nice work. Yeah. Well done, (laughs) Keenan. Yeah. So again, that's coming out November 26th, the long traverse. Check that out. Now, speaking of bouncing many things at high speed, in, in addition to, you know, all your exploits on the mountain bike, uh, this year, you were also racing the the skinny tires and then the, some, somewhere halfway in between, uh, doing a little cyclocross. So, uh, tell us about your experience at tour of Britain, you know, jumping back yeah. into, you know, not, not that you're by any means new to, to road racing, you know, um, but it seems like with the Olympic focus, you've, you know, that's been your thing for a few years, but you know, what was it like to, to get back into a, a pro road peloton on the often not smooth roads of England. Yeah. Um, well it felt like I was, you know, a total beginner out there again. Cause my first, my first road race in three years uh-huh. and uh-huh. you know, I, um, I've only done a couple races with team radios and like, I was nervous going back in the caravan again and getting water bottles, which is such an easy thing when you're in the, in the pro Peloton, but like <laughs> when you're a mountain biker, um, who hasn't raced road in, in quite some time and only raced, you know, junior in Europe, um, juniors in Europe and one U23 race. I never did a, a pro race in Europe. I was just racing domestically. Uh-huh. So this was so even, far. Th- sorry to interrupt, but even like when you were, uh, you were staying at the USA cycling house for a number of years, right? As a U23. Yeah, I did. I did the peace race in under 23, um, national team and that's it. Um, 
everything else was, on, was in the US, you know, with Gila or um, Colorado Classic. Um, but yeah, so it was like, it was totally overwhelming to start. The first stage was like, holy hell, like I'm back in this and I gotta, I gotta not crash. I gotta like, you know, navigate through the Peloton. And I wasn't thinking at all about the result. Um, I was just thinking about helping my team and getting good training. Um, and then later in the week, you know, I felt like a roadie again. And that's when I was up in the, on the breakaway with like four world tour, five world tour guys. And, <laughs> um, and it almost, I almost made it stick. Um, my endurance kind of ran out at the end on stage seven, but, um, yeah, it was, you know, it was so different than what I had been doing, but, and, and so you know, just frankly, like a bit anxiety producing being back in a, in a pro Peloton, but exciting at the same time. And I, I loved like being a part of a team in that way again. And, um, I definitely got a lot of good training out of it. So I'm happy I did it for sure. Also incredible way to see the country. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Interesting to see you racing there with, uh, Luke Lamperti, the, you know, U.S. national criterium champion. Uh, he's got an interesting story. He's all of what, 18 years old and um, he's incredible. Yeah. Luke is got a really bright future ahead of him. He was like, he was our captain out there. He's already, um, races like a, you know, not an 18 year old, but like a 38 year old. <laughs> like he knows his way around a pro Peloton as well as anyone basically, which is incredible. So your takeaway after seven days, you want to do more road or you, you're good with the, with the knobbies for the foreseeable future. I think, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go world tour, um, ever, you know, and I think I just, I just love the mountain bike too much. I love the third side of things. And if I use road, it's like a cool opportunity like tour Britain was and good training. Um, but for the time being, like, I think, yeah, my, my focus will be on the mountain bike and it may mean I don't do any road next year, but, um, we'll see, you know, I've got, I'm so fortunate to have so many different opportunities for races I can do. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. Trinity seems like that's a, a good program. there, allowing you a lot of freedom. Uh, to point your wheel of whatever diameter in whatever direction. Yeah. Sp speaking of, let's talk cyclocross. I know you, uh, like, uh, my understanding was the plan was to do some of the, the U S world cups. Um, you did charm city cross early October, uh, and felt, okay, it's been a long year. I'm a little feeling the Christmas coming on. I'm pulling the plug. Um, how do you, how do you know when you're done? Um, because it seems like you're, whether it's in the midst of a race or in the midst of a training block, there's got to be this constant balance of, of feeling, you know, tired and feeling fatigued, but knowing that's just part of the natural cycle of things and recovering and going again, how do you know when, or how did you know at, after Charm City, like, okay, that's, that's enough. I'm going to take a break. I mean, after the first day, like it was instant. It was like, <laughs> it was like forward jump when he, you know, stopped running and is like, I think I'm going to go home now, <laughs> you know? Um, uh. <laughs> and it's, I was so locked in this, like, in this, um, incredibly intense, you know, demanding routine of, of race season. Like, I mean, I only had three weeks off of, from the Olympics until world champs. And I was living out of a suitcase still. Um, I had moved out of my college home, so I was all over the place and I was, I was like, you know, um, it's a, it's a habit of sorts when you're that locked in and you're that used to going with it and, and running so fast, you know, throughout your life. Um, and then, yeah. And like, so I didn't really have the time to properly reflect and realize like, yeah, maybe I don't actually want to do cyclocross right now. Um, 
or maybe I, you know, I do want to do cyclocross, but it's not, it's not good for me. Um, and I think that's what I, what I realized right after the first day of charm city is like, it's, it's not healthy for, for athletes to push it past their limits. Um, especially in cycling, something that's this demanding. Um, and there's always time in the future if I want to do cyclocross, but um, like you said, there's a natural cycle to everything. There's a, there's a sun and a moon and you gotta, you know, <laughs> you gotta rest if you're going to push yourself that hard. With cyclocross worlds a couple months down the road, is that, uh, is that enough and moons away that you could come back for something like that? Or is, or is this full season, uh, been sidelined? You know, we'll see. I think I'm, I will, I will start to make a decision on that in the next couple, couple weeks or so. Um, I am going to do Cape Epic in March. I'm pretty sure. So that is a very different effort than, than cyclocross worlds. Um, you know, obviously with it being in Fayetteville, it's, um, something I'd love to do. Um, but I also want to be ready for it if I do show up. So, um, can't say yet, but, okay. Um, but you're not saying no, <laughs> Yeah, not saying, not saying a hard no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. But talk to us big picture about what, next year looks like for you. Yeah. You know, you know, you've had multiple years focused, at least partially focused on the Olympics. You know, how do you re recalibrate after that? And you know, what, what are the goals? What are the, the hopes and dreams for you for this coming year on and off the bike? Yeah. It's a really good opportunity for me to step back from the, you know, Olympic cycle for a year and like, I mean, this year I did a bunch of different disciplines, but continue to do that, be in the U S a little more, like, yes, show up to some of that gravel stuff, um, <laughs> hopefully in the summer and, and just like, yeah, get, get better, you know, just like commit to the process, build the engine and enjoy like all these different kinds of racing. And I think as far as how that looks practically, like having something like Cape Epic early season to focus on is perfect. And then bookending it with going all in on like one world championships. Um, I think next year won't be the year where I'm trying to win the world cup overall. Um, obviously, you know, I want to do that every year now, in my career, <laughs> but I will likely want to peak for certain races rather than maintain form throughout the whole season. Um, which is a challenge when you're, when you're at the top of the world cup level, you know, like Nino or, or people like that, where you have to be good every race and we have nine world cups next season. So it's a lot of time. Um, but yeah, I think I'll, I'll, I'll focus on some, some peak races and let other stuff kind of support that. Are there any particular races you've got circled? I mean, winning snowshoe world cup this year, first American win in 27 years since Tinker Wars. Congrats on that. Thank you. Uh, uh, yeah. Do you have any particular races circled that, circled that you're willing to share? Are there any particular courses that, that you feel yeah. play to your strengths or just emotionally you, you like, or. Yeah. Well, I, th I think world, world championships is an easy one. Um, at the end of the season, it's at Leger next year, which is, which is potentially going to be the Olympic course in 2024. Um, and then Cape Epic in March, you know, every, everything this winter will go towards trying to win that with a teammate. So, um, those are the two big ones. And then in the summer could be, you know, a big gravel race if it lines up. Um, and definitely a world cup block in there. Um, I, I'll be at nationals this year. So, um, I want to try to win the stars and stripes. Um, 
So yeah, I won't <laughs> now I'm sounding like I'm saying too much, but yeah. Cape Epic and Worlds. All the things, yeah. just going to, you're going to yeah. win all the yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> How about the uh, gravel things? Is there any particular races there you're looking at? Um, I'm not sure yet. You know, there's so many gravel races. Um, the Oregon trail stage race yes. seems pretty cool. Um, I don't yep. think I'll do unbound next year. Um, something early in, in, in the season and then maybe something like Leadville if it works out, but we'll see. I'm sort of, I'm trying to just now get into the puzzle piecing together of this part of the season. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. It seems like your, your friend and training mate, uh, Eddie Anderson had a good time up at, uh, Oregon trail. Uh, it's yeah. Fun, fun mix of gravel racing and stage racing. And that's still fairly unique in the, in the gravel scene. It was, that was fun to watch. And how, how about some projects off the bike? What do you, is there more, more videos in the works with, with your new production company? What's, what's on the, on the burners there? Yeah, there'll be a lot with still spoke and it's not, um, you know, I'll be behind the scenes more than in front of the camera in some, in a lot of ways, which is good. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, the whole impetus for still spoke is, is creating a platform where, where athletes and storytellers can come in and, um, and be creative and whether it's film-based and that's kind of the, the, the centerpiece of everything, but we have this, you know, spokes, if you will, um, <laughs> around the hub that include you know, merchandise. So we did a, a collaboration with Shredder's Digest, um, super cool artist in San Francisco, I remember in, and then, um, we created a, a magazine like these six by nine zines that really trace the whole story of the film. And our designer, Henry Nadell just did an unbelievable job with that. So it's like, you know, I think still spoke speaks to, um, the whole kind of philosophy is like, there's, there's a lot that can still speak, you know, with that name, <laughs> like film and, and print, right. Believe it or not. So there'll be a lot of projects coming out that, um, center around like humans in the outdoors and these deeper stories, but, um, sport shredding around in spandex <laughs> is a part of it, you know? Um, so yeah, that'll be exciting. And like I said, it's, I'm doing it with a lot of my good friends and, um, they're the ones who are really the creatives. Um, I'm just kind of holding the vision. So, and then hopefully writing some more poetry here and there. Yeah. Well, that seems like a, a great project and so neat. You're able to bring so many of your, your talents and passions together on that, uh, that hub, so to speak. I like the, like the wheel metaphor. It always, no need to re reinvent that metaphor. It's a good one. It works, right? So yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So, so still spoke.com. Uh, I will be. Yeah. One L one L still spoke. Yeah. Yeah. So folks check that out. Still spoke.com. The long traverse coming out November 26 and much more good stuff to come in the future. So Christopher Blevins, I've very much appreciated speaking with you. This has been fun. Thank you for your time and wish you all the best next year, sir. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Hope to cross paths in person. All right, folks, that will do it for us this week. We are back next week with Ashton Lambie, the world champion and world title holder in the individual pursuit. I am Ben Delaney. I am happy to hear from you at any time on email, ben at bellnews.com. And I want to thank you, as always, for listening to the Bell News Podcast.